thank you so much for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to study your word and to study Ezekiel this week. And for our prophets and who they were and how they point to you and, and to um, future things that even, even though we don't understand, we know that you are um, in control and that you are going to glorify and know your friends. So we pray for each of these ladies and thank you for how they've been involved in this study throughout the course of these um, eight weeks and just we thank you for the opportunity for our women's ministry to learn more about you and to grow in understanding of the, the word of God. We just pray that you would just uh, be glorified during this time and that you would um, allow us to learn more about you through this understanding of Alright, so again, as I always kind of start out, um, I mostly use my ESV study notes, which in this, in Ezekiel, um, were written by a guy named David J. Reimer. He's Nancy Guthrie's book. And then there's a guy, Preston Sprinkle, who wrote the chapter on Ezekiel and what the Old Testament authors really care about. He sent one all throughout. And then my husband found this other resource, Interbiblical Perspectives on Messianic Prophecy. It was a mouthful. He is the PhD. Um, but it's a helpful passage to look at um, one of the chapters about how it points to Christ. So you'll see that in here too. Um, and then a couple of other um, things that just maybe you hear this. Um, might mention commentators, I just kind of, my mind is blown with Ezekiel, quite honestly. And so, um, this is my honesty moment. Ezekiel was a challenging book for me, as I'm sure the less for most of us. It's not a familiar <clears throat> I've read through it before, but I've never actually studied it. And then some of the basic visions are um, mainly like about the dry bones, you know, about that. Um, but it has some difficult visions and passages to understand. So just bear with me, um, and I hope that we can glean a few things that I learned from studying. And you might say, well, I remember this, I remember that. And, and of course, I, I can't touch on all of it, but um, we're going to try to see um, kind of in maybe like two big parts. We're going to look at Ezekiel and kind of how his calling, his prophecy um, was a little different than some of the others, but how that plays into how God used him and how we can see Christ through some of these visions and through this prophecy. So kind of two big parts of, we've got to look at Ezekiel and who he is, and we've got to look at how he points to Christ. Um, so some of the main the main themes are, the book of Ezekiel is concerned with the holiness of God <coughs> and the sin of his people. And so, I mean, that's the, the way we think about a lot of the prophetic books. These, these people are sinning. Israel and Judah are not um, following the Lord, and God wants to deal with the sin of his people. But then there's also, the flip side is that repentance and a longing for the restoration of God's glory. But the interesting thing is that Ezekiel's messages aren't exactly about repentance. Um, there's no call for repentance overall. He just announces the impending doom that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. So it's mostly after the fall of Jerusalem that there's a, a call or a shift towards restoration and hope that he begins to speak about more and more. And it's a gradual thing, it's not just all of a sudden, but, but we'll see that. Um, so, as I said, when we were introducing and doing the flyover of the whole study, um, many of these visions point to the glory of God um, leaving Jerusalem, following the people to exile, and ultimately dwelling in the person of Christ. That's just a really quick overview, and I then said that said this verse, and I'm going to say it again. I thought about in Acts 
17, 24, and 25, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So I thought that was just a good verse to start out with. Think about that, that it's, it's not this permanent dwelling. It's Christ does not need this temple to dwell in. So just think about that as we're going through this. Um, the phrase, know that I am the Lord, um, occurs more than 70 times in this book. And so you're going to see, know that I am the Lord, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Those are big, big phrases that you'll see. Um, and these just show that God is in control and His glory is on display. Um, to wrap my mind around some of the things happening in Ezekiel, I looked at an outline by the guy that did the EFC study notes, David J. Reimer. And it just kind of helped me, he just outlines the book in a way that kind of helped me see kind of a sequence of, of what's going on. And so he outlines it in, we have the inaugural vision of Ezekiel, we have judgment on Jerusalem and Judah, we have the oracle against the foreign nations, then he terms it after the fall of Jerusalem, which includes the fall, and then the vision of restoration. So he has those five kind of categories, and we'll break those down a little bit. That kind of helps me see kind of the overarching way the book sort of is laid out. So we have to start first with who Ezekiel is and his calling, because it's a little bit different. So in this is wrapped up the glory of God. The whole time we're going to see, even in Ezekiel's call, we're going to see the glory of God revealed, we're going to see it move, we're going to see different things happen with the glory of God all throughout. But we have to, we have to start with Ezekiel. So in his inaugural vision in chapter 1, Verse 1 through 327, um, we see a couple of different, not a couple, but several different visions, but um, Reimer in the ESV study notes says it forms a unified whole, even though there are distinct episodes. And I think that's a good way to put it. There's different episodes of visions, but they all form this one whole of what we're looking at. But an initial note about Ezekiel, we see the title Son of Man is used for Ezekiel. But that's not used in the same way as the Son of Man is used in Daniel, or when Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. And Ezekiel's name is not used. He's always referred to as Son of Man, Son of Man, Son of Man. It's all throughout the book. But that's what he's called. It's not, it's not in a Christ way. It's, it's just what God calls him in, in, in the book of Ezekiel. Um, so Ezekiel had been preparing to be a priest in the temple of Jerusalem. You can imagine, we know that there's a fall of Jerusalem in this, in this book, and so you can imagine he's disappointed when he was exiled away from Jerusalem, and he's not going to be the priest, um, and he doesn't know what God's going to do with him. I think Nancy Jeffrey talks about that, about his life does not go as planned, does not go the way that he thought it was going to be. But then God does something remarkable for Ezekiel. He gives him visions and shows, um, shows Ezekiel glory, and so the first thing we see is the approach of the glory of God in chapter one, the whole the whole chapter. You went over this in your in your personal study and probably in your small groups. I'm just going to touch on it a little bit. But we see these visions of the storm, the four living creatures, the wheels, the expanse, and the throne. And one of the things that I read about is that it's kind of like the layers of an onion, and that they all kind of pile on one another. You have the outer inner, you know, the but it, I would say it's not even like an onion because it seems like it's kind of stacked. Because the climax 
of all of this is the vision of the glory of God on the throne. And we see, Ezekiel can't even put into words what he sees, the likeness, we would say that likeness is the human form of Christ that he sees, but he doesn't understand it. But we would say that Christ is seated on that throne above all the other things in the vision, above the storm, the creatures, the wheels, the expanse. Here's this throne, and he's reigning. And it's stationary. The wheels can go any direction. The throne is moving. It is not just fixed in one place. And that's something that um, the temple in Jerusalem had always been fixed in this one place. And so we'll see, we'll see how that changes. But Ezekiel can't even, he can't even fathom it. It's something that his whole life has been preparing for to be a priest in the temple. And he's like, why? Why is this this way? We don't hear him ask that, but you can imagine that that's what he's, that, that is what he's thinking. So we see that Ezekiel receives his call after this vision. He gets, in chapter 2, he gets told, go to the rebellious people of Israel. And then in three, chapter 3, he's asked to eat the scroll, which is crazy. We know that's a, a strange thing, but um, but that was fortifying and training Ezekiel in obedience. Do this, do this thing. He just he followed what God had wanted to do. Then in chapter 3, 12 through 15, we have the glory of God withdrawn. And then in 16 through 21, we have Ezekiel is named as a watchman over the people of Israel. And then at the end of chapter 3, verses 22 through 27, Ezekiel encounters the glory of God again. This time we see specific limitations put on Ezekiel's ministry. And it's different than, than with the other prophets. So um, in chapter 3, verses 24 through 27, it says, But the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet. He spoke with me and said to me, Go, shut yourself within your house, and you, O son of man, behold, cords will be placed upon you, and you shall be bound with them, so that you cannot go out among the people. And I will make your tongue cling to the roof of your mouth, so that you shall be mute and unable to reprove them, for they are a rebellious house. But when I speak with you, I will open your mouth, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God, He who will hear, let him hear. And he who will refuse to hear, let him refuse, for they are a rebellious house. So we see four things here. First, he is told to go shut himself in his house. Then he's going to be bound up. And then his tongue is going to be on the roof of his mouth because he's not able to speak unless the Lord gives him a word. So this is really different than the other prophets. Um, the other prophets were called to go out among the people and prophesy. And he's told to like stay in, be bound, to have these limitations put on him, and then only speak when God gives him a word. And so he can't just reprove them and say, this is going to happen, or guys, beware. He, just, he has to just kind of sit and, and watch this all happen only when the Lord gives him a word. And so um, commentators say that Ezekiel was mute for more than seven years until the day of Jerusalem fall. In chapter 20, chapter 33, verse 22. And at that moment, like the very next verse after Jerusalem falls, his mouth is open. And we see that fulfilled there. Um, and so it parallels a little bit when Zechariah was mute until the birth of John the Baptist. I thought about this, it's just kind of like it's a little bit of a parallel. And Zechariah wasn't prophesying anything, but that he was he was made mute until the birth of, of John the Baptist to show. God's glory and God's sovereignty in that situation, and this is kind of similar as well. 
God's sovereign control is on display with Ezekiel and with the house of Israel. God is controlling the messages that are being given to Israel and Judah. He is the one that is giving the word, and it's very clear that it's only God doing it. It's not just Ezekiel speaking, it's God speaking through Ezekiel. The other prophets, God is speaking to them as well, but this one is a little more clear cut of we can't do anything about it. Um, there's a judgment then on Jerusalem and Judah, and this lasts in chapter 4 all the way to chapter 24. And so we have the first part of Ezekiel focuses on all the exiles, which Ezekiel was part of that group of exiles. So there were three ways going to Babylon. Ezekiel had seen one way go before him, and he was in kind of the second way. Um, but they put, they put their hope in returning to Jerusalem. They all thought that one day they would get to go back to Jerusalem, that they would get to go back to the physical temple. And Ezekiel has to warn them that they have a false hope and that Jerusalem is going to fall. But he's not able to say, obviously, anything else but, but this message. But in chapter 8 through 11, Ezekiel has another vision of what's going on at the temple of Jerusalem. At this point, he sees God's glory depart from the temple and even the city. And so it moves from the temple, it goes to the door, it goes up on the mountain, and he's just, this has to be devastating to Ezekiel and to the other exiles. And they may have even thought that Yahweh's presence was being destroyed, and that because Jerusalem was being destroyed, they couldn't fathom that, that God's glory and God's presence could still be there, and where else could it go? They just had never experienced anything like, anything like it before. God dwells in the Holy of Holies, and we have examples from Moses and, and how to build the temple so that there's a holy of holies where he dwells. And then we have the temple here where Ezekiel knows that's where the that's where the glory of the Lord dwells. And so how else could it dwell anywhere else? And so God revealed to Ezekiel that he didn't need the physical temple to dwell with God, that even in exile, God's glory was going to be with his people. In Ezekiel um, 11, 19 through 20, we start to see it parallel the Jeremiah language of the new heart of flesh and not stone. It says, I will give them one heart, and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. So even though we have the sins of the people of Israel, God will restore them and give them a new covenant. And we see that this new covenant language, we saw it in Jeremiah, we see it here in Ezekiel, we'll see it again in Ezekiel a little bit later, and we see it in the New Testament that Christ is that new covenant, and that is that fulfillment, and that we're given a new heart that will be written on our hearts. And so that's one thing that points to that glory of God is, is moving and it's welling in different places, and we see that new covenant being brought in alongside that. And then here's that, that um, reference I was telling you about from the interbiblical perspectives on Messianic prophecy. In chapter 21, verses 24 through 27, there's a king, and he's overthrown. Let me read about this to you. Um, and you, O profane wicked one, prince of Israel, whose day has come, the time of your final punishment, thus says the Lord God, remove the turban and take off the crown. They shall not remain as they are. Exalt that which is low, and bring low that which is exalted. A ruin, 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 I will make it. This also shall not be until he comes, the one to whom judgment belongs, and I will give it to him. 
So from looking at this passage, a little hard to understand overall, but so bear with me here. Zedekiah is the wicked prince that the crown will be taken from. And so he has a loss of kingship and the overthrow of the kingdom line. And there's a triple repetition here of ruin, 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 ruin. The strong superlative is saying that God is announcing a temporary overthrow of the Davidic line. Um, the NASB, instead of saying the one whom judgment belongs, says, until he comes, whose right it is. Who's coming and whose right it is. It's in the in the passage here, it says it could be, or in the commentary, it says it could be Nebuchadnezzar, the actual physical king that's going to come and overthrow. It could be the Messiah. But we would point to, yes, this is the Messiah, the one whose ultimate right it is. It wasn't really Nebuchadnezzar's right to have it, it was Christ's right to have it. He was the Messiah. And this connects all the way back to Genesis 49 10. Um, and as we see all here, and Genesis 49 10 ultimately point to Christ, the Messianic king who will rule. In Genesis 49 10, it says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And so, in the Genesis study notes, um, a guy named T. Desmond Alexander, he echoes this connection in Genesis uh, 2, Ezekiel 2, the New Testament, that this is Christ, this is fulfillment, that the scepter won't leave Judah, that Judah is the promised kingdom, that Ezekiel says this king will fall, and then the Messiah will come, it's his right to have it, and we see the New Testament Christ comes, and he is the reigning king. So, again, we just have several pictures already of Ezekiel didn't understand that he was seeing Christ on the throne. This chapter is saying the king will fall. Well, they could have thought it was a king right then, but we see that it's Christ who has the right to the throne. And then we're going to see now moving towards the fall of Jerusalem. So chapter 24, 15 through 17, Ezekiel announces the imminent destruction of the temple after uh, this is right around the time of the death of his wife. So he's told, your wife is going to die. You're not going to mourn for her. And then Jerusalem is going to fall. And I'm sure he's thinking, what? Like, I've already eaten the scrolls. I've already seen all these crazy visions. <coughs> you're going to take away the delight of my eyes, is what he describes her as. And then you're going to destroy Jerusalem. Like, everything that I know is going to be gone. How is this? How is this good? I mean, I'm kind of reading into it there, but just as, as humans, we can think about this is just not, this is not okay. Um, so there's a little bit of an application point for us here. Um, where are we placing our hope? These people were placing their hope in this Jerusalem temple being restored and that they were going to be able to go back and everything was going to be the way that they had left it, and it wasn't. And they just didn't understand it. They didn't know. And so... God is giving them hope and restoration. We haven't seen it yet, so they're just in the middle of this turmoil right now of what's going to happen. So we have a section which, um, it's like Isaiah and Jeremiah, really actually most of the prophetic books have oracles against the nations. And so we have those oracles against the foreign nations, chapter 25 through 32. And this is just to show that Israel and Judah weren't the only ones being judged. There were other nations, and I think um, Ezekiel mentioned seven nations specifically but it was all in all the nations. They're all going to come under the authority of the Lord. They're all coming under the authority of the glory of God. And so um, Reimer says that the primary theological role of showing that all peoples are under the dominion and discipline of the King of Kings in this passage. So 
God is in control. He's sovereign over all the nations, not just Israel and Judah. And so that's why um, the point about this is important to, to highlight that it's not just affecting those who are followers, but the whole, the whole world about this. After the fall of Jerusalem was the next over, overarching um, topic in the outline, but this includes the fall of Jerusalem. So this is chapter 33 through 39. And the focus returns to Judah, who um, Ezekiel refers to all throughout the house of Israel. Um, so the false hopes, like we said, were placed in Jerusalem. They're shattered because Jerusalem is getting ready to fall. And so the fall of Jerusalem is only one short verse in chapter 33, verse 21. And this fugitive comes from Jerusalem and says, the city has been struck down. And that's it. Very simple. The city has been struck down. But this ends up being the climax of the whole book. And it ends up kind of shifting everything on its head a little bit to seeing the restoration and hope that we were talking about earlier. The very next verse after um, the city has been struck down is Ezekiel's mouth being opened and he's no longer mute, which is just as God had promised. As soon as Jerusalem fell, he's able to speak. So then he starts giving these messages. Um, so going on what Nancy Guthrie said, what hope is held out to the exiles? And I know you did this in your personal study and they talked about this in your group this morning. We're just going to touch on some of these in a little more depth, but in chapter 34, we start seeing the shepherd and the sheep. We see that language. We know that the Lord will search for his sheep and seek them out and rescue them from the places where they were scattered. Chapter 34, verse 23 says, And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. We know it's not David, actually. We know that it's that Davidic covenant, that Davidic line, and it parallels John 10, where Jesus is the good shepherd. We see that connection that he is the one that, that will come. They, they may not understand it, but we can look back and see this is Christ that they're pointing to. It will be the shepherd that will guard them, rescue them, take care of them. Again, we see the covenant language, chapter 36, 24 through 32. I will give them a new heart and a new spirit. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And this parallels that new covenant language in Jeremiah 31 and 32. We see the hope and promise of the shepherd and the sheep of the new covenant that will be established. And then chapter 36, verses 33 through 38, the city will be rebuilt. The land will become like the Garden of Eden, which goes all the way back to Genesis. The desolate will be replanted. The city will be filled with flocks of people. Again, we have flocks as similar to that sheep language. Flocks of people who will know the Lord. And so this just points renewal and restoration. Um, Ezekiel sees that, the, that these things are going to be made new, that there will be a rebuilding, a time of the desolation is gone, there will be new growth and new things that will come about. And then in chapter 37, probably one of the most familiar things to us, the valley of dry bones. The dry bones that came to life with sinew and breath and became a great army. Um, and it says, I will open your graves and raise you from the graves. I'll put my spirit within you. Again, we have that spirit being given, and you shall live. You shall know that I am the Lord. And we have that phrase as well. You shall know that I am the Lord. We see here that even maybe Israel, like they were following God, they're spiritually dead. And so this is an example of him breathing into these dry bones and coming to life, that this is a new a renewal, a new life being given, a spiritual life, 
and just like these bones actually come back to life in the vision. And then we have an everlasting covenant and a dwelling place in chapter 37, in chapter 37, verses 26 through 28. It says, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel, and my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. We see this language of dwelling place, and that it will be with the people. It mentions sanctuary, but the sanctuary will be with the people. So again, there's this covenant established, there's this dwelling place, but the dwelling place is with the people of the Lord. This all leads up to the final eight chapters, 40 through 48, the beginning of restoration. We've already seen, after the fall of Israel, some of this restoration, but the final restoration here is God's glory in the temple, which this is a lot to wrap your mind around. It's crazy. And so, question who, what, where, when, how is the temple? My answer is yes, all of it. <laughs> um, we don't exactly, and we don't exactly know. <coughs> My mind is blown over all of this. Um, we don't, we don't, we're kind of like Ezekiel. We don't know how to make sense of all of it, but we know that in the end, that, that it's going to make sense when we're there. Um, Chapter 40 talks about a structure like city to the south, and there's a description and, and imagery of a square temple like a city. And the main thing here is my husband kept telling me, telling me this. He said, Ezekiel sees renewal and restoration. His idea of renewal and restoration has to be the physical temple that's all he knows. And it has to be, he, he lists these different, you know, um, dimensions and descriptions and things that we know um, are different than, than maybe what what actually might happen, we don't know. But there are connections between Ezekiel's vision of the city and John's vision in Revelation of the Holy Two City in Revelation 21, 16. So there's this square city, um, there's um, the river that flows through, there's the tree of life, there's, there's renewal that, that goes back to, to kind of the Garden of Eden and all of this plays through. Um, in Revelation 22 and Ezekiel 47. The difference is that in Revelation there was no temple in the city because its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. Revelation 21 and 22 says that. So the difference is the Lord is is the fulfillment there and they didn't need the actual temple. So the main thing is what has been destroyed will be made new. How it's made new, we know that Christ is the renewal, the ultimate renewal of all of these things. And there's no, there's no need for a physical temple, Sprinkle says this in um, what the Old Testament authors really cared about, because Christ is the mediator of God's presence that Ezekiel has been talking about. Believers gain full and abundant access to God through the Lamb, Jesus Christ. Um, so I'm going to read Hebrews 7 through 10, has so much um, imagery and vivid um, discussion on this and how Christ is that. Fulfillment, but I'm going to read verses verse 9, 12, and then verse 15 just to quickly um, just tie that into the some of these New Testament promises here. So, well, verse nine, verse chapter 9, verse 11 and 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, 
not made with hands, that is, not of his creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And then, chapter, um, then verse 15, Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So we see here that first covenant being made into the new covenant. Christ is the new covenant. Christ is the mediator of all things. He brings it all together. And so, still mind blown, but that's that's kind of where we're tracking. So, in your personal study, again, you went through the process of answering these questions and you saw the progression: the city, the river, the name of the city, and then. Um, Jesus describes himself as greater than the temple in Matthew 12, 6, and as the bodily temple himself in John 2, 13 through 22. I think Nancy Guthrie gave us all of those things. And then she said, We are God's temple, and the Spirit dwells in us, 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17, and Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. So that's why I said, Yes, all of it. It's there's a temple, there's Christ, He's the ultimate fulfillment, He dwells in us, in our in our spirit gives us the new covenant, so we are also the temple of God, our bodies are a temple, a living sacrifice, it's all of it. <laughs> but ultimately, we can only be that because of Christ. And so he is the, the fulfillment. And um, on page 331 in Nancy Guthrie's book, she says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth, and that's from John 1.14. And that's just harkening back to when he comes as a baby in flesh, but he is the one that dwelt among us, and it, um, it literally says there, he tabernacled. The glory of God descended to dwell or tabernacle among his people. This time, not in the form of a cloud and fire, like in the Old Testament, but in flesh and blood. We have, even way back, we have the cloud and the fire with the people. Um, and she's saying, no, this is in flesh and blood, this is Christ. And then on page 233, she sums it all up very well. She said, Jesus himself is the new temple. We as individual believers are temples of the Holy Spirit, in 1 Corinthians 6, 19. We as the church are being built into the new temple, a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And one day, we will live in the new temple that Ezekiel saw in his vision. And on that day, when heaven comes to earth, the entire earth will become his sanctuary. So to sum it all up, we don't have all the answers, but we know God is in control, and he wants his glory and presence to be made known throughout the whole earth. And just as in Ezekiel's vision, we don't know exactly what it's going to look like or what it will be. We can't have, we cannot in our finite minds understand, but we want to be there with him because we know the name of that city is the Lord is there. Just pray with me. Lord, we thank you so much for the opportunity to just Ooh, just to just kind of do a marathon run through Ezekiel and just try to wrap our minds around all the different things that, that Ezekiel couldn't even wrap his mind around. Um, we thank you for giving us the prophets. We thank you for the words and the visions and the things that maybe we can see a little more clearly than even Ezekiel could at the time, but even still, we know that, that until that day comes, we won't even see fully what, what you have prepared for us, Father. We pray that you will help us um, keep looking towards an eternal glory and keep being reminded that your glory um, lives within us and does with us and your spirit is carried within us and that we have the opportunity to share that with others and that we pray um, 
be a glory of, of Christ on the throne and we will just be in such awe we will we'll just have no words to explain what what you're doing what we know that you will do there and that we want to be there with you. So we thank you for each lady that's here today and we just um, pray that you bring us all that safety next week and that um, we just thank you for this time as we learn.